You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Rory Murphy, who is the Vice President of Government Affairs at the U.S.-China Business Council and is based out of Washington, D.C. Before joining the USCBC, Murphy worked as an attorney at Squire Patton Boggs LLP. He previously worked in the Policy Office of Export-Import Bank of the United States and as a professional staff member on the trade staff of the Senate Finance Committee under former chairman Max Bacchus. On today's show, we talk about tech companies in Silicon Valley and decisions around CFIUS, outbound or reverse CFIUS, what is that? Where is capital flowing? Is it staying in mainland China, flowing to Hong Kong, or is it going to other countries like Singapore? Publicly traded Chinese companies being delisted and much more. And remember, when I'm not a host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions. So connect with me on LinkedIn or our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. All right, now let's start this week's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right. Now, I'm super excited about this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. On today's show, we have Rory. Now, Rory works with Craig Allen. He was on episode 97 with us. We've had a great relationship with their organization. But, you know, Rory, just the first question right off the bat, can you tell us a little bit about your career up into this point, a little bit of background on your organization, you know, how you work with, with Craig? Just you know, give us the foundation for, for the questions ahead. Yeah, of course. So, Sean, first, it's great to be here with you. Um, I've been working in trade policy for around 15 years here in Washington, D.C., in in Congress and the executive branch during the Obama administration, in in the private sector for the past several years. It was very trade policy focused. And over the past five or six years, the majority of that work has really started to focus on China, right? A lot of the attention in Washington has been on China. And earlier this year, I joined the U.S. China Business Council uh, to run their government affairs team. We as an organization have around 280 member companies, all U.S. companies. And our our mission is pretty simple. It's to expand the U.S.-China commercial relationship for the benefit of our members and more broadly, the U.S. economy. So Craig, who you've had on before, leads our organization. We are probably 30 people, 30, 40 people total spread between Washington, D.C., Beijing, Shanghai. Our government affairs team here in Washington is fairly active. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably a good overview and look forward to chatting more today. Roy, you'd mentioned, you know, 200 plus companies that are in your organization. Are we talking mom and pop or are we talking the FANG companies? So most major U.S. companies that have a presence in China are, are members. So we also have a, a growing group of small businesses that, that are among our membership. And I think it speaks to, you know, how interconnected the U.S.-China relationship has become economically over the past 20, 25 years. You know, the, I think the big guys were in in the market first, but in recent years, smaller companies have started to make investments, have started to you know build their supply chains in China. And our membership really reflects a whole bunch of different sectors, a whole bunch of different industries, and uh, really, you know, in terms of size, a, a diverse group of companies. Okay, now let's talk about. I mean, one topic here in Silicon Valley that has been a huge topic over the years. I mean, this started. I think when I really was starting to get 
invites to conferences and meetings specific on this was right after the trade war. And that is on CFIUS, the Committee of Foreign Investments in the United States. I mean, this is talked about a lot here in Silicon Valley, but it really does affect all of the US. It affects all the world. Can you discuss what CFIUS is, a little bit of background, and are there any updates on this? Yeah, so CFIUS is, I'm glad you guys are talking about in Silicon Valley because it is, it's a very important thing for, for companies or compliance schemes to, to be aware of, to be thinking about. You know, just kind of broadly speaking, CFIUS is a, an executive branch committee that reviews certain foreign investments into the United States to determine if those transactions, those investments could could threaten to impair U.S. national security interests. Uh, usually, this is when a foreign party is gaining a controlling interest in, in a U.S. entity, uh, but not always. Once a determination is made by CFIUS, you know, if this is going to impact negatively our national security, they can advise the president to either block or modify those investments. Oftentimes, CFIUS, before a transaction is finalized, will work with the parties involved to put in some some mitigating constraints to address any national security concerns. Your your listeners uh, may be familiar with CFIUS and some of their higher profile things that they've worked on. There was a Dubai ports case in the mid-2000s that got a lot of publicity. Just a few years ago, I believe in 2019, CFIUS intervened and requested that a Chinese company sell its interest in the app Grinder. And the reason they cited was the national security risks over you know that all the personal information that the app holds, and, and so they 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 requested, and and, and the sale went through of, of Grinder. You know, CFIUS has voluntary and mandatory filing requirements. The rules are constantly changing. There's a massive reform to CFIUS passed in 2018. Just in September of this year, President Biden issued an executive order that instructs CFIUS to take into account five different factors when assessing the risk of an investment. This doesn't change existing law, but I think it, it, it shows and provides market participants a little more information as to where the focus is going to be in terms of the National Security Review. So these factors are you know, the impacts on U.S. critical supply chains, the effect the transaction could have on U.S. technological leadership. CFIUS should look at industry investment trends, should look at the cybersecurity risk, and, and importantly, risk to U.S. persons' sensitive data. So this is kind of a highlight of where the administration's focus is. And from you know Silicon Valley, others, you know, as you're considering investments, as you're considering uh, transactions and bringing on partners, it's very clear the Biden administration has a has a tech focus in mind as it, as, as it applies to as it applies to Cypheus. And that's that's pretty interesting. You gave an example of the port. It's because I mean. I think in my mind, at least, maybe other CFIUS is just rather pretty new, but it sounds like CFIUS has been there for, for quite some time. But now, so I, so I guess the focus is more on that data aspect that they're going after tech companies, or is it you know, manufacturing as well? You'd mentioned logistics, you mentioned some, I mean, how encompassing is CFIUS? Like, is it every industry? Yeah. So it's every industry, and it's been around. It started, I think, in the '70s, but it was it was just kind of a notification only requirement. Really, in the late '80s, CFIUS became what it is today. And the Dubai Ports case, it was there was some foreign entity that was looking to buy U.S. ports, and it, it got a lot of press. And as a result, CFIUS reviewed it. Yeah, this is kind of before my time, if I remember correctly. CFIUS okayed the transaction, but then Congress intervened after the fact and said that they didn't want the transaction to go through 
But overall, CFIUS has their their main focus is protecting U.S. national security interests. So they're going to look at things in the tech world, things in infrastructure across the board, right? There's been a lot of high-profile cases. The most recent action, the executive order President Biden put out, uh, again, it doesn't change a lot, but it does signal where their focus is. And so, you know, all these things could have been reviewed in the past. This is the, the, the action that we saw is almost putting the business community on notice that we are putting special focus on things like U.S. technological leadership, risk to U.S. person sensitive data. And, and I think those are important things for us as a business community to internalize as we consider future transactions. Before going on the, the next kind of topic about reverse CFIUS and what's happening there, for CFIUS itself and outside investment, is that only for like large companies or should early stage tech companies seed to A round early, you know, the first two, three years of their their operations, if they want to take outside capital, is that something they should be aware of? Or is it only if they are more mature later stage, hundreds of millions of dollars in market cap, that this actually yeah. is a topic? So if you are a company involved in tech, you're looking to take money that is going to give up a, a controlling or meaningful interest in, in your company, I think it makes sense to do the due diligence to determine if a notification to CFIUS is warranted and that you kind of have to do a risk calculation on your own. Sometimes these are voluntary, um, but do a risk calculation of, is this warranted? And should this something we be considering before this transaction goes through? Okay, now let's go on to reverse CFIUS. Now, this is something that I had just heard of for the first time when we talked about during the prep call for this. I'm 99% sure almost the entire audience has not heard of this either. Can you talk about what reverse CFIUS is, what we should know, how that's going to impact U.S. investments moving forward? That's a great question. And it, it's a question that Washington is, is still trying to answer today. We're recording this early in Q4. We expect some action by the end of 2022, early 2023 in this space. But we want to kind of run through what we know about what the, the goals of this effort are, what we don't know, and kind of describe some of the proposals that are out there. In terms of what we know, it's very clear. Washington, both Congress and the Biden administration are quite interested in establishing a CFIUS-type review for investments going abroad. Uh, there's concern among lawmakers, policymakers, that U.S. companies are making investments into certain sectors and that that's hurting U.S. national security interests. When this goes into, so if this, if this were to go to effect, uh, before an investment outside of the United States were to be made, a company would need to uh, notify the government and potentially wait for the government to sign off on that investment. We know one thing that we do know is they're not looking at all investments, all foreign investments. They're you know, directly focused on countries like China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, and they're focused on certain technologies. But what those technologies are, how you define them, are, are some things we don't know. We also don't know what types of investments would be covered, You know, what if, if there's an amount of money, if there's a certain type of investment. Uh, we also don't know what powers this outbound CFIUS mechanism might have. Some, some proposals I'll go through here in a second have a blocking ability, so the administration could block an investment from occurring. Some are purely just a notification-only requirement. So legislatively, there's a, a bunch of different ideas out there. On one end of the spectrum 
is a bill called the National Critical Capabilities Defense Act, or the NCCDA. It's sometimes referred to as the Casey Cornyn bill, because uh, those were the two senators who first put it forward. This is by far the broadest of all the ideas that are being contemplated. The Rhodium Group did a a report and found that had this bill been in effect over the over the last 20 years, that 43% of all investments made into China would have required a notification to the administration before that investment could be made. This bill also would have would, would grant the administration the ability to block or modify an investment. So that's on that's on one end. That passed in the House of Representatives as part of kind of the bigger chips bill. Um, that that uh, President Biden signed into law. Thankfully, um, it, that language was not included in the final bill. It passed it in the House. It was stripped out of the final bill that went to President Biden's desk. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, there's a proposal out there from Senator Pat Toomey of, of Pennsylvania. This proposal would be focused only on investments into things like advanced semiconductors, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. And this would be only a, a notification requirement. So you would have to notify the government, but the government couldn't take any action. And part of the design of this is that a lot of the concerns that lawmakers are raising about what they want to address with an outbound CFIUS review, it seems as though that some existing authorities, including through our export control regime, would, would already achieve what they're trying to achieve. So it'd be duplicating authority that's out there. Uh, the Toomey proposal, getting these notifications, would, would provide more insight into the investments that are being made. And presumably at a point in the future, uh, would better inform policymakers uh, when they put in something more similar to CFIUS that would have a blocking authority. The last thing I would note um, is that the Biden administration is very, uh, is very likely to act soon through executive action. Um, they've signaled this very clearly. This may, you know, this may happen by the time this episode comes out, but uh, th- there's a few different proposals out there. Uh, one similar to to uh, Pat Toomey's proposal, that would be just kind of a notification-only requirement. We know that the administration is focused on very like higher tech issues, not just kind of broad investments or very higher tech things. Um, but they do want the ability. Some of the administration want the ability to block those investments. So that was a long response, but let me just leave you with what you think. What I think you all should know is that something in the outbound investment review space is coming, and it's coming very, very soon. Okay, and with that. I mean, the outbound investment review, how I kind of just want to ask, you know, what are your thoughts of how that's going to impact investments from the U.S.? I mean, if it has to go to review, if it has, I mean, that's going to take a lot of time. Won't they no longer be competitive in the open market? I'm, I'm just kind of wondering. And then it was also mentioned higher tech. Higher tech sounds so broad. Could you kind of talk a little bit about what higher tech maybe is defined as or a little bit more information about that? Sure. So on the competitiveness point, I think that that is the exact right question to be asking. And it's the point that we've been making to the administration, uh, to Congress for, for a long time. And if you look at it from just kind of a logical perspective, it's a concern among policymakers that there's capital flowing into, say, like the Chinese startups. And those Chinese startups are focused on technologies that are hurting our national interests. If you're cutting out U.S. capital, but you're not cutting out capital from the Europeans, from the Japanese, you're just removing us from the equation, right? And you're not really achieving your national security objective. So we have been pushing the administration Congress that any action in this space should be done on a multilateral basis. We should be, we're focused on working with our allies 
um, but working with other partners to develop kind of a, a regime to be multilateral. That's much harder to do, but I think it, it gets to your point of like, why are we just hurting U.S. competitiveness instead of achieving a, a you know a state and national security objective? In terms of higher tech and what they want to target, you know, we know for sure there's a bunch of different ideas out there. Everybody basically agrees of what should be covered, including the Biden administration, or things like advanced semiconductors, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. Also under consideration, we've heard from, from the administration and elsewhere, are things like aerospace, bioscience, large capacity batteries, critical minerals, uh, clean energy tech, pharmaceuticals. There's all these ideas out there. What's going to be so important is when these policies go forward, is that they get the definitions of these terms right. I mean, you know, John, when it comes to something like artificial intelligence, that can cover a heck of a lot of products and software. What are you actually trying to accomplish? And can you define this in a way that's not just going to, not just going to be a hurdle in, in our investments in, in these technologies? One thing that, that's quite concerning, some of the proposals uh, coming through Congress have a, have a broad kind of catch-all provision. So, in addition to those technologies that I just listed, the stiffiest type entity would be able to you know, claim that any technology it identifies as important uh, to national security would also be subject to review. And that yeah, will largely depend on how, how that's applied could largely depend on who's in the White House at the time and what are the goals of that administration. At the end of the day, that catch-all provision could lead to a lot of unpredictability, a lot of instability. And make it very difficult for companies that are forecasting out you know, 12 months, 24 months, five years. What are we even going to be allowed to do? That's interesting. Oh, talking more about like, U.S. investment into China, at least for prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of meetings here where there would be someone representing a free trade zone in China. You know, come here. We we. Oh, are opening our doors to you. We'll give you all these perks. Just set up a, an office here. Are there any updates with any of these free trade zones? What ha, was that successful at all? Or I know the pandemic stopped a lot of things, but just any updates that you could share with, with that? Yeah. So I think it's too early to tell if, if it's been successful or not. There, there was a lot of excitement when Shanghai first established its FTZ in, in 2013. Since then, over the past eight, nine years, about a dozen of these have been created across China. The, the reception, I'd say, has been pretty muted since many of the new market access opportunities for foreign investors have, like, weren't really didn't materialize in the way that is either sold or anticipated. Restrictions on foreign investment into China are governed by a national negative list, meaning that companies are free to invest in any sectors not included on the list. There are separate negative lists for, for these FTZs, which in theory allow for increased liberalization, but in implementation, it, it's not, nothing's really opened up beyond that, that national list. So in some cases, the liberalization allowed by the FTZs just don't make business sense because they're limited to the geographic area of the Pacific FTZ. The entirety of the Hainan Island was made into an FTZ in 2018 and is being in the process of being uh, turned into a free trade port, that, that could have even further liberalization. In 2020, the Chinese government issued a separate negative list for free trade port, uh, which removed foreign investment restrictions on things like data centers, cloud computing, 
that's all like good, right? Like that's a, that's a good sign. And I think something that your listeners would probably find pretty attractive, but this is a, a fairly limited utility uh, to most companies since it's restricted just to the island. I would say that most of this effort is the right approach. It hasn't lived up to, I think, kind of the expectations that, that we had, uh, that a lot, many of the business community had when they were announced, but it, it's, it's an evolving process. So I'm not willing to write, write them off yet. Uh, I, I think it's just, too early to tell. And once we get to the other side of the pandemic, uh, maybe there's an opportunity for these things to increase their utility. So if the free trade zones aren't, I don't want to say the home run hit everyone was kind of hoping for, but you know, to be determined, what are the right now kind of perks or incentives that are being promoted from mainland China to either companies here or abroad to set up operations to really invest in, in things there at this time? Yeah. So this it's it's a it's a good question, and you know China really is trying to encourage foreign direct investment in a few ways. First, they they have a, a catalog of encouraged industries for foreign investment uh, that provides benefits to enterprises like tax reductions, tariff exemptions, discounted land sales, land use priority. That last piece there is is fairly important because the government owns all the land in China, so that special treatment can be a, a big deal. Uh, China has a, a second area. China has a, a foreign investment law. Um, it's pretty broad. It, it aims to encourage investment by evening the playing field for foreign firms through a number of different reforms in like the trade secrets, IP areas. Uh, it attempts to guide foreign investment into to key fields by offering preferential treatment. One of the big things it tries to do is strengthen local level adherence to non-discrimination policies. But I'd say the main criticism of this law is that it's hard to enforce, especially at the local level. And I think our member companies continue, would say that they continue to face uh, market access issues that in theory should have been remedied by this law, but haven't been. The last thing I would note is that there's a litany of industrial policies that China uses to support different industries. And yeah, we'll often describe these things as extortionary, uh, protectionist. But there's some cases where foreign enterprises, foreign companies can, can benefit from them. I would note that you know, China's main form of COVID relief came in tax breaks, and that's available to foreign businesses. So there's a lot of efforts out there how it's been enforced, implemented kind of differs at, you know, what, in, in what location you're at, but all, all sorts of different ideas uh, or different efforts being attempted by China and hopefully things that your, your listeners are aware of and able to benefit from. And speaking of our listeners possibly be able to benefit, I mean, some of them have companies all throughout the world. I'm really kind of curious right now, capital flight, is it I mean, we're talking about foreign direct investment into mainland China, but is the money yeah. more moving into China or more moving out to maybe Hong Kong or Singapore or other locations right now? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, the capital is certainly leaving China's bond and equity markets. And it's hard to track exactly where this is going, but I think it appears to be going to countries like Singapore. You know, at the same time, there's increases in, in short-term interest rates here in the United States that's made it more attractive to deposit or lend money in the U.S. rather than in China, uh, where interest rates have largely been uh, reduced. I would say that Hong Kong also appears to be becoming a less attractive destination for capital. Uh, this is due in part uh, to its currency uh, depreciating. And, and I think also just some of the geopolitical tensions 
and internal tensions related to Hong Kong, I think make it, a, a, it has kind of changed the, the dynamics of Hong Kong as, as a destination. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, so are seeing more move to Singapore or, okay. What about, what about the manufacturing? I mean, for the longest time, Silicon Valley company, they want to get something produced, fly over to Shenzhen, find a, a manufacturer, find someone to work with to produce. Is that still happening? Or at least for a little while there, I was hearing a lot of companies from mainland China moving operations, moving facilities to Vietnam, to move to other places. Is that still happening? And, and if so, should a company here from Silicon Valley should they look to Shenzhen still as that first prime place to go or maybe to Vietnam or some other place? Or I, I'm sure it's case by case, but kind of an overview. What are you seeing? Yeah, so you're right. It really does depend on uh, the, the company, the product, the short-term, long-term goals. There's a lot of good reasons to be in China. On the other hand, though, we're definitely seeing some movement or at least diversification of supply chains. We do an annual survey of our members every single year. And I think there's a few interesting data points from, from this year's survey that kind of may provide some color on this question. So, you know, following the, the COVID lockdowns and a pretty challenging geopolitical atmosphere, optimism in the Chinese market took a, a pretty sharp dive compared to what we've measured in the past. Companies expressing an optimistic five-year outlook fell to an all-time low of, of 51%. That's down from nearly 90% just a, a decade ago. So, I mean, a dramatic a dramatic drop. Now, keep in mind, these questions were asked in June, so kind of coming out of the, the Shanghai lockdown. So, you know, take, take it for what it's worth. When we asked uh, our companies, what is the reason for the decline of this optimism? And the top response was geopolitics. Others mentioned, you know, the changes in the underlying landscape of China's domestic and market growth and regulatory environment, but geopolitics is issue number one. Not, not surprisingly, this has had a, a pretty big impact on planned investment and supply chain. So just a quarter of the respondents to our survey said that they have plans to accelerate their resource commitment to the Chinese market in the next year. That's half the proportion of what it was five years ago. 62% were in wait and see mode, so not committing to increase or decrease, but just waiting to see kind of how things play out. Notably, though, China is, is still a high priority. 77% of our respondents listed China as a top five priority market. That's down, though, from 96% a decade ago. On supply chains, most respondents are not moving their supply chains out of China, uh, which I think speaks to the country's competitiveness on speed and quantity, quality, the cost of manufacturing, their talented workforce. But the, the increasing challenges the environment presents to companies has caused folks to reconsider their supply chains, or at least look to diversify. Over the past 12 months, nearly a quarter of respondents have moved some segment of their supply chains out of China. That's a big jump from last year. Um, we don't know necessarily where they're moving. Um, the majority are not going to the United States, but it is certainly a move that, you know, do you look at the trend lines? I think people are still optimistic about the Chinese market, um, but they're starting to diversify and looking for options outside of it. The main reason I would flag, because I think it colors this year specifically, the main reason folks are looking to move their supply chain out of China is the, the COVID shutdown was the top reason cited and the desire to uh, make their supply chains more resilient. And, and so I think that kind of, there's a lot of logic to that based on what's happened. Speaking of you know, supply chains, logistics, everything. And let's stay kind of in that part of the world. Uh, there's another kind of agreement or partnership that 
maybe our listeners know, maybe they don't, but I'd love if you could put some light on it. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RECEP, that trade agreement. I mean, what should we know about this? And does the United States have an have an answer to it? And could you give a little bit of background of it for our, our listeners as well? Of course. It is a, it is, RCEP's a, a free trade agreement that includes most of the major economies in Asia. Uh, it also includes Australia and New Zealand, but a very regional free trade agreement. In terms of its size, it's huge. The countries represented within RCEP include or account for 20, 28% of global trade and goods, 31% of global GDP, 29% of the world's population. So what's included within the RCEP uh, market, and, and China's a you know, member of this, Japan, Korea, it's these major, major economies all in, all in Asia. And so it's really an achievement due to its size. And it, it really became front and center after the United States abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was kind of our response to this, even though I, I believe it, it launched first and it was an agreement among many of these same countries. China was not included. But, but we walked away from the agreement at the beginning of the Trump administration. I would say that RCEP is significantly less ambitious in terms of various commitments to other trade deals like TPP, like the, the USMCA. Both of those had very, had lots of chapters, had very ambitious goals of, of what countries should be doing. But RCEP is important because it, it aims to eliminate 92% of, uh, or aims to eliminate tariffs by 92% over the next 20 years. And, and so this provides a lot of incentives for companies that are doing business in the region to be producing in the region, right? If you want to benefit from these lower tariff rates, it makes sense to be housed within within the RCEP region. The the United States, the Biden administration, look, TPP, uh, well, you know, I personally have, was, was a big supporter of it. It's just politically impossible for us to get back to something like TPP in the near term. Kind of recognizing that the Biden administration uh, has launched a new effort, IPEF, that is focused, again, in kind of the, the Asia region. IPEF has four pillars to it, supply chain resilience, infrastructure, tax and anti-corruption. There's a trade pillar. But notably, the IPEF is not a traditional free trade agreement because it doesn't have market access. It, it, it's not going to be calling for tariff reduction. I think kind of one interesting dynamic to note is that with PPP, there was you know this, this uh, kind of publicly stated goal of in enhancing the, the practices of the Asia-Pacific region and shaping um, how China and other countries in the region operate. With IPEF, Secretary Raimondo, who's one of the, the key negotiators of the deal, uh, has been quite clear that the goal of IPEF is to get U.S. companies to leave China and, and to invest in IPEF signatory countries instead, uh, because they know that these countries will meet you know, certain standards. So it's a little change in dynamic. Instead of trying to you know, raise the standards for everybody, the IPEF is more designed, or at least kind of the stated goal here, is to get companies into the IPEF region, investing there, trading from there. Okay, now let's take it back to the U.S. right now. Okay, we're moving around away from Southeast Asia. U.S., one of the things that was in the news a lot was delisting publicly traded companies. Is that still on the table? Has that kind of stopped? What what's happening in that yeah. on that topic? 
Yeah, so it was definitely floating out there as an issue. It was getting a lot of headlines, a lot of publicity that Chinese companies were going to be delisted from U.S. exchanges. Um, and it came pretty close to happening, and it still could happen. Fingers crossed, uh, we are on a path to resolution. You know, it's kind of a little background of how we got to that place. Under U.S. law, companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges have to open up their books to certain auditing requirements. It's been around for a couple of decades, and it applies to foreign companies. And China, Chinese companies, were, were not complying with this requirement. And for a long time, it, just, it was kind of known, it was frustrating, but there's no action being taken. And Congress, a couple of years ago, passed a, a new law that said, China, you need to be in compliance. If you're found not to be in compliance for three straight years, we'll force a delisting of, of Chinese companies. It's important. It's not, it's not each individual company's uh, responsibility. It's the, it's the market. So if China as a country is found not to be in compliance, all Chinese companies would be delisted. A relatively obscure agency here in the United States, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, PCAOB, they're the ones who determine if a jurisdiction is com- in compliance with uh, our auditing requirements, right? And there was, uh, they determined last year, so year number one, China was not in compliance. They were on path to determine again this year, for a second year in a row, that China wasn't in compliance. At the same time, China, or, uh, Congress was looking to change the law to go from three years of non-compliance down to two years. And that law was very close to passing. And that's kind of why there's a lot of push this summer a lot of stories that by the end of this calendar year, early next year, Chinese companies could be delisted. Luckily, there was a deal signed between uh, the United States and China, the kind of the, the, the bodies that are relevant to the auditing and the determination. And we have the PCAOB has inspectors on the ground in Hong Kong right now that are expecting the, the auditing papers. So we'll see what they find out. The, the, the chair of the, the PCOB, Erica Williams, has been pretty clear that there's no loopholes here, that the agreement that the United States signed with China was for complete access, adequate access. Um, and they're not going to accept anything less than complete access. So I would say we're on the right path. It seems so as though we've probably avoided delisting this year, early next year, but we'll, we'll see what comes as a result of the inspection, what, what the inspectors find on the ground. Okay, now what about, okay, let's take it back now to China, US, trade war, pandemic. What has been the results of these, you know, and presidents switching for the trade between the two countries? What should we expect maybe post midterms here? Can people plan anything for 2023, 2024? What's the overall view? Well, I think one of my takeaways from the past five years is that, yeah, look, we there's a lot of disruption in the bilateral relationship. The the trade war was was unprecedented and you know led to all sorts of tariffs on you know three hundred and seventy billion dollars worth of goods from from China, all sorts of different actions. We went through a global pandemic that made trade between the countries more difficult. Um, I mean, we're still companies are having big time access issues into getting into the Chinese market in terms of getting like boots on the ground in the Chinese market due to their quarantine policies. These major, major, major challenges that were very tough to predict five years ago. And despite that, trade between our countries is still quite good. In 2021, our goods exports, U.S. goods exports to China hit an all-time high, uh, $149 billion. 
China remains our third largest goods export market behind only Canada and Mexico, who obviously are much closer geographically. So it's a it, the relationship sustains despite these challenges. I think, though, that we're not in clear waters quite yet. There, these challenges are not going away. And the tensions that we have between our countries will, will continue. You know, we may have some, some, uh, some opportunities here in the coming months on the other side of uh, the midterms to uh, you know, be a little more thoughtful in our policy. But uh, you know, Washington is, is pretty focused on, on the bilateral relationship. That's interesting. And I mean, we're, we're starting to wrap up on time. Quick question. What have we not covered here so far that you think our audience would really benefit from, from learning? Got a, an amazing audience of entrepreneurs, investors, leaders in tech. What information should they know about moving forward? Yeah, so a, a couple of things I want to I want to highlight. You know, one I just kind of alluded to this. There, we're going to continue to see a focus on China among among policymakers after the midterms, after China's National Party Congress. We may have some political temperatures lowered, but at the end of the day, eighty two percent of Americans have an unfavorable view of China, and the politics of anything with an eighty twenty level are just too good for members of Congress not to focus on it. I mean, I think that I looked it up. A couple of weeks ago, I think the, the NFL has a 67% approval rating. Like finding something where 82% of Americans agree on something is just unheard of. And so there's a lot of political incentive for, for there to continue to be a focus on China. But China is still the you know, largest market for a lot of our tech companies. It's the largest or one of the largest buyers for U.S. businesses. But it's also our main political rival. The relationship is layered with you know, confrontation and cooperation and competition, as Secretary Blinken, Blinken put it uh, recently. And so what does all that mean? There's, there's a lot of complicated dynamics, politics playing into the relationship. So I think kind of what I would uh, leave your audience with and into you know, what to expect in the, in the coming years um, with, this, with this continued focus. I think there's going to be a, a big effort on export controls next Congress. Assuming Republicans take the House of Representatives, they've made quite clear that they want to do a, a big overview of, you know, how our export control laws are, are being enforced um, and, and pursue legislation to, to enhance those. I think there's going to be a big, big focus both in Congress and in the Biden administration on personal data and how that data flows and, and how you need to protect it. And I think we should all anticipate there to be more disruptions in the bilateral relationship. You know, back in August, Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan. Um, and regardless of if you agree with that decision or not, if you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, it created a lot of tension in the bilateral relationship. We're going to continue to see more of that type of action from members of Congress. We're going to see more legislation that gets votes and potentially passes that makes things more complicated. So I think that be prepared for that. And I think be, you know, be sure that you're tracking um, what's happening in the, in the U.S.-China policy space because it's, it's changing you know, truly every week. Fantastic. And Rory, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your organization, what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah, just go to our website, uschina.org. We have tons of resources on there. Some of them are behind a paywall for our members, uh, but we have a lot of public information, newsletters you can sign up for. So encourage all of you to do. 
All right. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, what I'm not doing the podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker, focused mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Please uh, email me and connect with me. You connect with me through the podcast. Our website is thesiliconvalleypodcast.com or best is on LinkedIn for me, Sean Flynn, SV, Sean Flynn Investment Banker. You can find me. But you know, more than anything, Roy, I got to thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. And I look forward to continuing relationships with our podcast podcasting your organization. Thanks a lot, John. This is great. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.